Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Drive-by Cinema, night time. On into the night with Rick and Paul. It's late, Paul. It's after midnight. It is, is it? Oh, I meant oh my to say, God. you know. When we did last week's film, Sinister. Yes. I watched that movie and the moment it ended, almost the second, it turned midnight. Dun. I watched it last week. For whom the bell tolls. Were the local parish bells pealing in the background? Well, we don't have parish bells anywhere near me in the city here. You, you may have a different experience. There. I thought I thought you live next to a converted church that's now... Converted, yes. The people who live in the bell tower. They don't have a bell there. Esmeralda! Welcome to Drive-By Cinema episode... Welcome! 31. 31. Recording late, late night, as we are. As we are. The podcast where... Two people trapped in an ongoing COVID corona lockdown. Nightmare. Review movies of the sci-fi and horror genres. Oh, I was going to change this, where I just repeat the last three words that you say in every sentence. It would be easier for me, I think. It would certainly be less taxing for us both, yes. If you for just... us both, yes. <laughs> Paul, though, we've got news. We've got news. We have a roadmap out of lockdown. We do. Madness. It's, it's going to be a while. We all embrace madness. <laughs> How long is it going to be until I can get my hair cut again? Well, you could cut your own hair, Richard. I've been. Doing I guess that you a do at the bit. moment. I have to. I have to. It's getting too long around the ears. Do you like use it. a three mirror or the two mirror approach? Oh, I don't. Oh, you no, I don't go that just, far. I'm just, you just uh, hope for it and go for it. Yeah. I just. I'm just clipping it around my ears, so I don't. You look just like hail Mary it. Woohoo! <laughs> Lawnmower man. You just lawnmower man it, do you? Let's see what I do. I do the fashionable mullet. Ah, the mullet has come back, yeah. That's well, cool. I've always had a mullet, except I came back to the UK in early 2020 and I went to the Southport Barbers. They had a barber pole outside. It was expensive. £22 the haircut cost me without a wash. So you'd think they know how to do a bloody mullet. And I went <laughs> in there. No disparagement. She was a female barber, which is strange, but no, it's not because of her sex that she messed up. And I said, yeah, I want a mullet. And she was like, what? Well, you want a mullet? I thought, yeah, they're coming back into fashion in Australia. Uh, and uh, they've always been in fashion in parts of America. And they're certainly in fashion in Asia. If you take part in a Taekwondo club or that kind of thing, often a mullet is the cut that you get along with your teammates. So, you know, pockets of fashion and mullethood. Is, mullethood is accepted in various parts of the world, just not in the UK. And she was saying, oh, I don't like those mullets. And I should have at that point walked out of the shop, but I didn't because she got going about how she doesn't like Meet Me at McDonald's haircuts. She said, oh, the mullet. Back what? then, it's like the Meet Me at McDonald's haircut is today. What's they all come meet, in these... What's a Meet, meet me, me at McDonald's haircut? Is the frizzy type perm on top. Oh, okay. Uh, typified by the Blackpool grime scene. Ah. Oh. It was banned, you know, because the Blackpool... The kids doing the Blackpool grime scene, the boys in that scene, started, you know... The Meet Me at McDonald's haircut. And of course, it was copied pretty much all the way through the UK by impressionable boys at age 11 to 14. Some schools banned it because, because of its associations with the grime scene. So, so yeah. So she was saying, I don't like that. So I should have walked out at that point, but she, 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 I mean, technically she did give me a mullet. It was just a mullet that was essentially short back and sides. 
So I lost my mullet. Uh, but since then, uh, since lockdown has really begun in earnest, I've been mulleting myself. Excellent. Hmm. We do have listener feedback. Now, remember when we watched The Beyond, the mm-hmm. Italian horror movie, The Beyond? Ah, because we watched two Beyonds. That's right. Well, the spaghetti horror, if that's the correct term, if that's the uh, permitted term. It is a permitted term, yes. It's a, it's a genre that is a firm favourite of listener Adam. I may have mentioned Hi, that Adam. Hi, listener Adam. He is not the first, or not the only person now, to have suggested Suspira as another film we might consider. Whoa. Okay, I can take that on board. He also mentioned a little bit more about... Uh, Luigi Fulci, the guy who did The Beyond. Yes, Fulci. If you remember, Alistair had looked up, I think, a series of film titles, which were quite extraordinary, of other films that Luigi had done. One of them was called, I think it was called Cat in the Brain, wasn't it, if you remember? I don't remember, no. Food of form, Adam has seen this film. He He hasn't. He said of this film that everything we said, me and Alistair said, about was wrong. Fulci. No, it was absolutely true. Oh, he is a pervert. Yeah, but in The Beyond, that's him turned way down. That's his least Fulci film. Whoa. And he's much worse than the other ones. So, Cat in the Brain, he, he, he Adam described <laughs> it as... It, it, I think it's sort of clips of his other films. And I think it's a film, kind of a meta film about his filmmaking kind of... Career, I think. Wow. But the interesting thing about that is... Is it's really, really horrific. It ends with Fulci on a yacht, and the name of the yacht is Perversion. Wow. Really, kind of, uh, what's the word, validates what me and Alice were saying about the guy. I mean, as an Italian communist, I mean, he he wouldn't have much time for market garden morality, would he? So, you know, I I think his perversion was essentially a badge of honour about his sophistication, if you like. Cultural sophistication more than anything else. Still, I think we may have to put Suspira on the list, maybe. I have done already. Good. But it's not what we're talking about this week. What are we talking about this week, apart from lockdown haircuts? Ah, well, this movie movie is... Tom York and his three-minute video. Well, let's bring up some other music that's not not burdened by copyright claims before we talk about this week's movie. This week's movie is? It's not Tom York Creep. It's actually Creep. Oh. by Not by Tom York. So a movie called Creep from 2014. And it's a really, well, it's, it's a tidy little two-hander, by which I mean there are only two actors in this movie. Not strictly true, there's a voice of a third actor. But it's a two-hander, just two actors. Patrick Bryce, who directed, starred and co-wrote it. And Mark Duplass, I think he's called, who starred, co-produced and co-wrote it. Now, Mark is famous in the indie movie arena. He started out by creating Mumblecore, a movement which is improvisational and focuses on natural dialogue. And in some sense, Creep is an evolution of that. It's Mumblegore, the same idea, you know, highly improvised, but with some traditional horror aspects thrown in. Really? Introduction over. Was this improvised? In this film, highly improvised. Wow! So it's they wrote it together. Obviously, they sketched they sketched uh, a basic uh, basic arc out, 
and then, you know, flesh it out as they shot it kind of thing. Which I think we saw in another movie, didn't we? The dinner party one where they enter multiverses. Coherence. uh, Where that was very strictly uh, based on improvisation, quite quite strict improvisational techniques, wasn't it? You know, it was like the method acting of improvisation. They really went in there cold in many respects. They only had the the plot and they had to make up the, the dialogue themselves. I think with this one, you know, the dialogue was sketched out. But obviously, there was there was room to to move with it as as the movie as the movie progressed. Yeah. So, it's so not, sorry to interrupt. So it's not just about the dialogue; it's more about their reactions, the way they are in front of the camera, uh, and the idea that it's not it needs to be presented not as a film experience, but you know, people acting out who happen to have a camera with them. Yeah, so. this is a found footage film. No question yes. about that. Almost from beginning to end, it all takes place in the conceit that we're seeing the footage that this guy is, has, has taken as a result of a job that this guy has got. So presumably he's some kind of amateur cameraman. Uh, he's responded to a, an advert, probably a Craigslist advert, I would guess, given the era. And one of the characters, Joseph, has commissioned this guy to... Aaron, yeah. Aaron, yeah, to spend, I think, eight hours filming him as sort of a video diary of his day or a message. Mm-hmm. And the story, as it transpires a little bit later, uh, he doesn't know this when he takes the job, the story is that he's actually dying. He's got cancer, brain tumour. Well, he had cancer and uh, he, he was operated on successfully. He recovered, but they didn't spot that it had moved to his brain. Yeah. And now there's a huge tumour on his brain. brain. Inoperable. And he has a, a kid on the way. He's expecting a son. And he wants to leave a message, really. And this is what this film represents. It's a video message showing what his father was like in his ordinary life kind of thing, I suppose. Now, were you expecting it to be horror or were you expecting... Because like, when Aaron drives up to this log cabin, well, quite a beautiful cabin in the, in the woods, my first feeling is, feeling is you know, this is going to turn horror. This is going to become like a grindhouse rip and render, you know. Like, you know, Jason by the Lake kind of thing. Just just the setting of it. And it, as it turned out, it didn't become that kind of thing. It didn't become a slasher movie at all. But I was just waiting for a twist where Aaron is the bad guy and the guy who you initially think is going to be the horror, uh, Joseph, turns out to be wrong somehow. I was waiting for that twist and it never happened. Spoiler alert, uh, it is as it appears. Joseph, the crazy guy in the woods, is the crazy guy in the woods, yeah. But did you ever think it was going to be about his illness rather than it was going to be a horror movie? Because I didn't. Look, it's because all I got was horror movie vibes. It's called Creep, and mm. I go into this film. This is, by the way, the sort of second time I've seen it or something. Uh, the first time, so thinking back to the first time I saw it, I knew there had to be something creepy or awkward about it. I, I wasn't sure I was expecting a full-on horror movie, which, in a sense, it's, it isn't. It isn't. I don't know. It's very strange. Mm. The found footage genre lends itself to horror in a particular way, doesn't it? It's it an does, especially yeah. horror-related or horror-adjacent thing. So I suppose I kind of knew sort of what, what we were getting into. I tell you, I really like the opening bit of this where Aaron is driving up. It's a really authentic moment because he's filming himself driving and he's talking to the camera. And he's explaining what he's doing. It seemed authentic because you'd imagine that if you were taking a job that seemed a little bit shifty but was probably going to be okay, you would mm-hmm. talk to yourself in the car just to reassure yourself that this was going to be cool. 
because um, he's I think trepidatious about going to see a guy he doesn't know spend eight hours with him and film him in you know whatever situation that he finds himself in you know that that's potentially an awkward situation isn't it it's socially awkward not necessarily yeah scary. I mean I think as you're arriving you, you may be going to be thinking is this going to turn into a swingers party mm. I think he says Aaron says oh maybe it's going to be a beautiful beautiful blonde and we're going to be jumping off the back of uh, speedboats all weekend so he actually says in the car, doesn't he, that it could be some creepy kind of sex pesty thing. He says mm-hmm. it could be a forty-year-old guy who wants to do back rubs or something. <laughs> so he has, you know, he's aware of the problem or the possibility that this may be some nefarious plot. Are back rubs necessarily sexually suspect? Yes, Paul. Yes, I mean, it's, no, they're not. Foot massage, even a massage has got a sexual connotation to it, doesn't it? Which uh, is somewhat well, subversive. I don't agree. By no, professionals. no. Sports massage, maybe not. But even there, I mean... Have you ever had a sports massage, Richard? Of course not, Paul. Who would give me a sports <laughs> it's massage? It's fucking painful. Brutal, is it? I mean, okay. There's nothing sexy about it whatsoever. Some people like pain, Paul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, but I, I think... It's a weird thing, is it? Because, like, like, out in the East, definitely foot massages are not... They're not a sexual thing. It's where you go to have a business meeting, you know. A foot massage? No, right. maybe not. Yeah. But some pe- again, some people love feet. Yeah, I know, but generally, like, and also a body massage, like some people get the foot massage, some people get the body massage, and there's nothing really. What about a full about body it? massage where an oiled woman or man lies naked on you? Is that not sexual? I think it's definitely sensual, isn't it? But <laughs> I don't know if it's. I don't. Know, it depends. It depends upon the establishment that's providing the services. I think at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to places where it's not, where it's definitely above board. What, naked body-to-body massage? No, 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 not that. But a full body massage, I've definitely had one, and it's there's nothing implied, or you're not supposed to ask for a happy ending or anything like that. It's simply a, body, a, a you know a serious massage. Suppose you go to such a place, and yeah. the attractive massage... And you get the wrong idea, and you think it's a, a knocking job. No, uh, you're well aware that it shouldn't. you shouldn't be propositioning your masseuse. Or Masseur, whatever it's yeah. called. But suppose you do get aroused. Suppose the act of someone touching you in an intimate way, or, you know... The act of somebody, in, what, in pummeling it, your muscles and almost dislocating your shoulders. Suppose it gives you an erection. If you're into that kind of thing. Well, what are you supposed to do? Would they be professional about it? Would they just go, oh, yeah, it's completely normal? Or would you be banned from the establishment? Do you, do you, well, it depends. Do you mean like a, a end of the diving board erection? <laughs> you know, the guy. He's a, you know he's, he's, he's you know he's what, he's that? thirteen years old. <laughs> he's thirteen years old. He's in year eight, whatever they call it, and he's gone to the swimming gala for the school's competition, and he's got his little trunks on. He's in the diving competition, and for some reason, the excitement of it all is not sexual excitement, but you know, it just triggers <laughs> an erection, and he's stood there at the end of the diving board in front of his peers and their parents. Do you mean that kind of erection? This sounds awkwardly autobiographical, Paul. <laughs> or do you mean, or do you mean like, or do you mean uh, cat's paws erection? Like the cat jumps on you and it's pouring at your genitals, and you know you shouldn't find it attractive. You don't find it attractive, but it's just doing it so well that it gives you. A, do you mean that second kind, or do you mean the third kind? Like you know. I don't want to be pervy about this thing, but it's it's kind of my thing, and I'm into it, and it's turning me on, and oops, there I go in another direction. Because there's three kinds of accidental or 
uh, or unwanted erections that could occur here in this circumstance, aren't there? This, uh, so which one do you mean, for brevity's sake? This admission Number of, one, number two, and number three. This admission of shame that you're conducting is very much like a trick that gets used in the film, isn't it? Where at one point he <laughs> he asks Aaron... It's actually not far into it, is it? Isn't it? After they've been out for a walk, they wind up in a cafe eating pancakes, and uh, Joseph says to Aaron, "Oh yeah, tell me something. What's the most you, embarrassing thing that happened? You were ashamed to you of yeah. shame, yeah." And Aaron says, oh, "I used to piss myself." Uh, and poor thing. Apparently, his mum got him a special device to put in his pants with a wrist strap on it and it would beep when he pissed himself and he was on the jungle gym or whatever in the playground and he and he peed in his pants and that was shameful lying there covered in his own pee and joseph then says oh well i've got something i'm ashamed of and he shows aaron that he'd been watching aaron arrive in the car at his house and was taking pictures of him as he went up to the door Uh, but he didn't answer the door at the time Aaron had stood outside the door, and you saw that earlier on the film. He'd stood outside and then gone into the car to wait. <laughs> and that moment is broken by a jump scare. It's the first jump scare of the movie. See, it's not a traditional horror movie in many ways, but it does have jump scares, doesn't it? It does quite a lot of jump scares. But again, a lot, yeah. I don't begrudge it that because it's a well-done movie. To cut to the chase here, I, I enjoy Creep. I think it's a really good film. Yeah, definitely creepy and sometimes scary. I'm just thinking now, like, because like, I, I, I love giving people massages, Richard. Do you mean to say that people just assume that I'm doing it for sexual reasons? Or is that your perspective? Well, it or probably, a general perspective? Well, it probably depends on people, whether they saw you on no. a diving board or with their cat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to the third circumstance, like, you know, I, I, I have been in, like, business meetings where we're having massages and I go for the foot massage. But, it, it's not the, you know, males and females there are all working for the same company. Yes. It's not really a sexual circumstance. But I have seen some males, because, you know, when they do the foot massage in Asia, you know, they'll, like, bend your legs over your head and massage your legs and rub the acupuncture points just below your groin, so it is very intimate. Uh, and I, I, you know, one guy was visibly quite excited by that. And the masseur just put towels over the over the <laughs> discretion. There's <towel>. padding, <laughs> discretion towel. Yeah. So I think they're used to it. I'm sure. Aren't foot massages performed by fish? You can do that, but apparently you can get blood diseases from that. Oh so. my god. So uh, with terms of the jump scares, I don't really agree agree with some of the online reviews that said there were too many of them. For me, the inevitability of Joseph's final behaviour and his final intention for me was quite clear. That you know he was he was spoiler alert he's he's, he's gonna he's gonna do in the guy he's employed ostensibly to come and make a movie. Well, it was we, all a pretense. It, it's, it's, you know, for me, it was clear it was going to happen. It's yeah. sort of telegraphed, so, isn't it? Right, but yeah, the very very early in the in the film, just as he arrives, Aaron arrives and he's waiting outside. There's an axe. There's an axe. Yeah, and he focuses yeah. on the axe. It's a foreshadowing, it's isn't it? And then, yeah. and then it's lampshaded a little bit later, where Joseph is saying, "Hey, did you see the axe? Yeah, I bet you thought. Yeah. What do you think when you saw the axe? Kind of thing. <laughs> when they're out walking, but also the there's several confessional moments, like, "Oh, I scared you there. But, you know, oh, yeah, I bet you were going to kill me, kind of thing. You know, all these confessional moments. 
are there pointing at there to the viewer that this is this is inevitability. Yeah, there's an actual path that we're heading on. It's going to happen. So they're not jump scares in the in the sense of will we escape the monster? We kind of know the outcome, and so the fright. Because often as viewers, we're with we're with the protagonist, but here we're actually a voyeur on the protagonist and the jump scares happening to him. So it works in a different kind of way. But we're very much we're watching. I was going to say we are very much Aaron, aren't we? Though. I mean, we're watching we are, through his but camera. We're watching him. We are. But at the same time, because of that knowledge that we have of what's going to happen, we're slightly different from Aaron because he doesn't know, but we do. Oh, he's, that's different from most, he that's different know, most horror he? movies. He suspects. He suspects, but it's different from most horror movies in the sense that, you know, when we're, when we're being chased around the lake, you know, by Jason, we're in there. We don't know more than the actual people being chased. You see what I'm saying? So there, there isn't that knowledge, you know. We're not innocents. We've eaten the in this one. We've eaten the apple, and Aaron hasn't yet eaten the apple. Yeah. So we have a knowledge that he doesn't, and therefore the jump scares work not as in a traditional way, but in a sense of you know. Imagine you're on a Skype call to one of your relatives, and you can see somebody behind them in in their room with an axe. And suddenly the sound cuts out and you're screaming, you know, you're screaming, screaming, screaming. It's like we want to scream to Aaron and we can't do anything about it. And I think it's effective in that way. We are skipping over a very important part of this movie, which is... The plot. (laughs) Well, no, from the opening moment where Aaron meets Joseph and Joseph's explaining the, the setup. Yeah. It's clear that Joseph is a really creepy, awkward... It's a really creepy dude, and you you feel the social awkwardness of the situation so strongly. It's beautifully done uh, thing in the movie, I think. Because you know the very opening speech where Joseph explains, you know, he he's first of all he's very intense, isn't he? Very intense, yeah. And he's all about uh, the emotional connection. It's going to be great, you know. He explains. The, the cancer story, he had cancer, he's recovered, but he's got a brain tumour now, he's going to die, he's got a son. This is a legacy of, you know, something he's going to pass on to his son. The first thing he does after that, when he's kind of sort of set the scene for Aaron and why he's doing this filming, is he says, right, I'm, I'm going to get in the tub. And he immediately hops upstairs <laughs> and asks Aaron to follow him. Strips off completely while Aaron watches in horror. And, well, he gets in the tub, doesn't he? He's saying, oh, don't worry, you're not getting in the tub with me. <laughs> and then he proceeds to act out an imaginary scene oh. with his unborn child. Who he's, you know, he's making this video log because he's dying of cancer. He wants his unborn child to see it. Uh, his son having smelly feet in the bath and he's washing and licking his feet and this kind of thing. And at this point, you're thinking, this guy is absolutely nuts. And you can't, you can't help but think Aaron must be thinking the same thing, but he wants to make the dollar. Now, Duplass, the, Mark Duplass, the actor who, you know, who plays, who plays Joseph, his perspective was, when you, you meet some people and you get signs, intense eye contact, a lack of personal space, oversharing, a little bit too much love in too many places. And he was saying, you know, this is what he wants to capture with the character of Joseph. And to some extent, Aaron, you know, because like you say, I think Aaron knows he's going to be killed. And yet he does nothing about it. It's interesting, isn't it? For me, in terms of psychological accuracy, there's something of the prosecutor's fallacy with hindsight going on here, you know. We always say, oh, well, you know, 
yeah, you know, he murdered his own family. And looking back, you know, he didn't take the bins out every week like everybody else does, you know. And it's this idea of people have a defining characteristic that's odd, and oddness implies their criminality. Mm. And so I thought that was a little bit off. It's not very modern psychology that they were using there, but for the purpose of acting and the purpose of drama, it's acceptable, you know, and often... You know, these weird sociopaths do have very strange behaviours in, in quite fundamental areas. They're not just oddballs, you know. It's this way that they just transgress all the basic social etiquette and boundary rules, you know. But what was interesting for me is, you know, the office on fire experiment, where if you have 12 stooges sat in a room that's smoking and later on fire and they do nothing, the test, the test subject, the one person who doesn't know it's all an experiment, will stay sat in that mm. room until they would be dead. Yeah, yeah. For me, there's some of that going on with Aaron's reaction. It's like, you know, when is he going to decide to run from this guy? Well, he does decide to run, doesn't he? Just to explain what happens. Initially, they go out for a walk. Joseph has got this location in the woods. He lives in a very beautiful kind of mountainy, woody area, doesn't he? Yeah. He takes him up this river to... A little water, a magical curative waterfall. There's a little heart-shaped depression in the rock, filled with water by the waterfall. It's supposed to be a healing spring, and Joseph, I think, without any real expectation, but he goes there, you know, uh, as if to bathe in it and maybe cure the cancer. I don't think he really thinks it's going to work, of course. And then, then they go for pancakes and stuff like that. Oh yeah, then there's the bit where after he gets in the tub. Uh, oh no, he sends him to go and get a jacket, doesn't he, from the closet. And Aaron goes, he opens a closet door, and there's this uh, mask, this terrifying wolf mask in the closet. It's pretty scary. And Joseph, Except, yeah. Joseph has a really good explanation for it. Oh, well, really good explanation, yeah. He said apparently his father used to wear it and sing the song. It's and he comes out with the song, it's doesn't Peach he? Peach Fuzz is the name of this wolf. Brilliant. Yeah, and so Peach the next scene that you see is Joseph wearing the wolf outfit or the mask or whatever and doing this. And this is, again, an appallingly awkward and intimate moment, isn't he? As he presumably... Well, I guess we we know later that he's pretending to reenact what his father was supposed to have sung to him as a kid, but it didn't really happen. It's all, Amazing. all made up. Yeah. And it's a really horrifically embarrassing little song that he sings about being a nice wolf. But this is the point, you see. All this foreshadowing and telegraphing of, you know, the scares and putting on the wolf mask, you know, all these indications that something bad is going to happen. He pulls back every time, doesn't he? He's like, he's, he's, he's doing some sort of edging behaviour, not sexual edging, but some sort of edging where he's kind of confessing and then he's pulling it back. Yeah. And each time he's seeing how much he can scare or go towards actually murdering this guy. And then he pulls back. And he's, he's almost like teasing himself as well as the victim, you know. Very interesting. I thought it was really accurate because, you know, that's something that, you know, a sociopathic killer would do. Yes, yeah, sort of gaslighting thing that's going on, isn't it, in a way? It is, a gaslighting kind of reality testing. You know, it's, in, it's very interesting. But there are several times where Aaron is on the verge of quitting and leaving and he continually sort of ups the stakes or uses mm. sort of emotionally blackmails him into staying it culminates he does but that's he can do you see because 
I mean, that's how a sociopath is different from most people, is that he can escalate without warning. And it, and the escalation doesn't come, it's not tied to any regret. You know, you think about the times that you've had really violent thoughts towards somebody. It's it's, it's because they've exasperated you. you. You remonstrated them for weeks and weeks and weeks. You've tried to use your words. You've tried to use reason. You know, you've got emotional. I feel like you're projecting show. again, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying, most ordinary people, you know, to get to the area where, you know, we're jumping behind people and threatening people and this almost real threat, you know, there'd have to be a very clear set of escalations before we'd employ those tactics. But for Joseph, there isn't, you see. So he can go up there and he can come down there immediately. And I think that's what phases Aaron is that the usual, you know, if somebody's going to glass you in a pub, there are usually warnings, aren't there? And there's usually a pathway to how that might happen. And there's a there's a way back down the mountain, isn't there? Usually. But evidently here, there isn't a way up or a way down. You know, it can go up or go down at the merest whim. And so he's not... I mean, Joseph isn't emotionally tied to his violence, is he? It's it's a play-play game for him. You know, it's not, yeah. it's not rooted in real human emotions, is it? When they go back to his cabin and it's getting dark now, uh, Aaron tries to leave at that point. He says, "I'm going to go. I'm going to go now. Thanks. Bye." Kind of thing. This is really well done. You know, Aaron's no good at getting out of there. No, he's terrible. Jo- Joseph is crestfallen. He says, "Oh, you know, but I was, I was going to pour us a glass of whiskey. You know, just one, just to celebrate the day that we've had. It was a good day, wasn't it?" Blah blah blah. Eventually, he convinces Aaron. He sort of twists his arm, and gets him to go in for one whiskey, and he has a whiskey. And I think, again, he's about to leave. And this is, again, Joseph ups the stakes here. And he confesses. He says, can I have to ask you to switch the camera off? But he leaves the audio running. And he confesses how he uh, he made up the story about Peach Fuzz. About how, actually, he discovered his wife was into animal... And he makes up another story. This is a brilliant, isn't it? He, says he makes up another his story. His wife is into animal porn. So he... He, he confronts her about it and is finding pornography. She denies it, but he goes and buys the wolf mask. And then he says that he tied her up and rapes her. And this is his confession. She loved her. And he's wearing, whilst he's wearing the peach fuzz mask that early he danced in for Aaron. And I think this moment of the movie is simultaneously hilarious. Brilliant and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's it's brilliantly done. This part, this the acting in particular. But isn't it brilliant? Like he comes down from the mountain of you know having having he comes he says I've lied about this this childhood story and then he goes back up the mountain with this you know he comes up with another concocted story. So I, what I don't know what Aaron is used to is the fact this guy's prepared to build lies upon lies upon lies upon lies. So Aaron's trying to close this project out, and it's clear they've just recorded kind of the final message and then Aaron is moving to leave again but he can't find his keys he gets his jacket his car keys aren't there now at this point of course you're gonna you're gonna suspect that it's you know Joseph that's done it all yeah but not Aaron clearly or he doesn't have he doesn't have the sense of the the courage to to confront him he he doesn't confront him no but I think it, it must be clear that Joseph's been trying to keep him there all that time hasn't he Joseph does at least he is able to say look you've had you've had a whiskey or two you don't want to be driving right now it's middle of the night there's plenty of beds in this place you know stay the night (laughs) Aaron's desperate now but he obviously has a plan and he 
This is what I mean. He does try to get out of here, Paul, because what he does is he drugs the whiskey. He, he does, a big yeah. glass of whiskey. He puts Benadryl, apparently, in Joseph's whiskey. And Joseph, and I don't well, think that he tastes funny. He does, yeah. So, Joseph falls asleep on the fireplace. Yeah. As soon as he's asleep and Aaron thinks it's safe, he goes looking for his keys. And I think he's looking to his pockets and stuff, isn't he? He pulls out Joseph's phone, which starts ringing just about at that same moment. And so he dashes off into the bathroom so it doesn't wake up Joseph. And he answers it. Who is it? On the phone, it's Angela, who Joseph had, I think that was the name he'd used for his wife. Yeah. But when Aaron answers the phone and whispers into it, she asks him, you know, who are you? Kind of where where are you? And she tells him to get out, get out of there. Because she's not his wife, she's Joseph's sister. sister. Now, at this point, did you think it's actually his sister or is it a paid actress who's in on the ruse? I didn't know, I couldn't decide. That's difficult to know, especially considering what happens later. Yeah. But I I suspect it really is his sister. And she really does, she is trying to warn people that Joseph is an unstable character. Aaron is a bit upset by this. But when he comes out of the bathroom to try and act on this new information, Joseph is no longer lying, sleeping, drugged on the uh, fireplace. <laughs> and when Aaron tries to leave, it turns out he's standing there in the peach fuzz wolf mask. And Aaron says, can I leave? Doorway. And he shakes the mask slowly, whilst rubbing his rump against the door. Yeah, he's wiggling his hips suggestively. <laughs> and then he leaps on the camera guy. Because he's, he's still filming all of this, and camera goes black. Great moment. What's happening. Great moment, because next shot, cut to the next day, <laughs> he's digging a grave and burying plastic bags, which we can only assume is, is dismembered limbs. He's dragging these bin bags of something. Into the woods for burial. A steep hill, and digging a, digging a hole with an old-timey shovel. But it's a bit of a fake-out, isn't it? Because we then see... Aaron picking up his camera and doing another selfie kind of shot in at his home. And it transpires that he's watching the video of Joseph dragging these bags up that has been sent to him in the post. So he explains that he got out of there when the well, when the peach fuzz was at the door. After that attack, he managed to escape. He got back home. But he's been sent this in the mail. So Joseph knows his address. That's the first thing he discovers. And he's a bit shocked by it all. He throws the video CD away with the video on it. But then he gets a parcel. A big box actually arrives full of packing foam. And inside there is a knife and another video. Another video. Joseph explaining himself. And this is, I think this is really well done, this part, because he kind of descends into an inappropriate psychobabble where, you know, his terrible behaviour, he doesn't approach from emotional terms, but from abstracted, abstracted self-help terms that just put objectifying sheen on things. It's just, that is just so worrisome, you know. So at this point, you know, if you were Aaron, you'd have to say, look, I, I'm never going to go near this guy. Again, his weird yeah. apologies, his strange perspective on what he did, and, and his, his way of abstracting his way out of it through, through this kind of analytical talk. All of it, these are huge, huge warning signs at this point, aren't they? Yeah, he's basically saying, you know, you, hurt, you, know, you really hurt me, Aaron. I thought we, you know, thought we had a connection or something. And you know, At that point, you've got to say, how can, he, how, can he, how, can he, how can he say those things, you know? Just what a weird perspective. Well, he's saying, yeah, I realise that those 
having violent thoughts about you and I was totally inappropriate, you know. And so, uh, you know, I've changed, I've, I've changed my mind kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, as you say, he's trying to be objective about his own responses in a very... But in a very distended and disconnected way. Unsettling way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So if there is a moral for this movie, is never trust a furry freak. Furry. Yeah, never yeah. trust a furry. It did make me think about furries, <laughs> the way he described his sexual experience with this. But the thing is, furries... I don't know if you've seen any furries, Paul, or maybe you had an encounter with one, but they don't dress up like scary wolves, do no, they? They're just they like cute like dogs. cartoon animals. Yes. Yeah. Seems to be a quite a different thing. It's weird. Strange. It Interesting. Is. I mean, I'm not... Fascinating. I don't mean to kink shame, but I can't imagine it's very comfortable... Hot. ...engaging in sexual Scratchy. activity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Plushies. That's the word the Americans use for soft toys, isn't it? Yes, plush toys. That's what, that's what it's like, isn't it? It's like being a plushie. Being the stuffing to a plushie, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of not cosplay or fetish or anything like that, but I was asked to wear a baseball a baseball outfit, which I'd never worn before for the purposes of sexual, satisfying somebody sexually. And baseball outfits, they look kind of tight and lycra-ish, don't they? But actually, they're made of really thick, uncomfortable, heavy material. Oh, right. Because you slide on the floor with them, yeah? It just slides. I space. suppose so. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of it's it's not what you think. It's not sporty. You feel okay. Yeah, interesting. Did you have a little cap on a baseball cap? I did yeah. But as it wasn't my fetish, it was the other person's fetish. You know, yeah, I couldn't I, I couldn't override the reality of how uncomfortable and old fashioned the was, yeah. material was. That's it. Yeah, a furry could only could only have sex with another furry, not someone who was trying to indulge them. But they can override the the reality of the situation. Because they're in their yes, fantasy. So, must be able to. so you know, yeah, the, yeah. the stuffiness and the stickiness of it all doesn't really matter, does it? Because they're in another they're in another zone. They're in a zone of self satisfaction, aren't they? Yes, yeah. Anyway, should we get to the end of this movie? What happened in the end? I mean you think Aaron would never see this guy again. But what does Josie jo- say? He says, Hey, you know, I feel really bad. Will you come up and meet me? We can you know Well just before that, there's a really creepy bit, isn't there? Aaron is woken up in the middle of the night, he turns his camera on. Very reminiscent of the scene, similar scenes in The House in Sherwood, wasn't it? Yes. He turns his camera on. He, there's obviously been a noise that's woken him, woken him up. He leaves the camera running as he runs around the house. And it so happens that it can see his front door. And as he is looking elsewhere, you see Joseph appear at the windowed front door, just staring. And again, you know, typical style, just before Aaron comes back to see him, Disappears. he disappears. He goes outside... You hear someone like jumping through the hedge or something or some sound in the undergrowth. He keeps looking. He eventually goes around the back and the the bin, I guess they'd call it a trash can, wouldn't they? Has been pulled over and there's trash on the floor and he blames it on the raccoons and goes back to bed. But then the camera switches on and you're seeing Aaron sleeping. It's obviously not him turning it on. And then you see hands reach over and I think they pull some hair up from his head. And they cut it off with some scissors. It's obviously Joseph doing this. And subsequently, he, s- he sends another video, doesn't he? Another video in which he says he's just doing this because he's so lonely. He really desperately needs a friend. And Aaron was his last chance. And he was you know, really desperate for it. Watching this video of Joseph pouring his heart out, I think it's probably the least believable bit of the movie. Is that yeah. Aaron responds to that and says, you've got me. I'm going to go meet you then. Where He was asking him to meet him by a lake uh-huh. on a bench and presumably, you know, apologise or whatever. 
Yeah, I guess for the purposes of the film at this point, for the pacing of the movie, you've got to go along with the fact that Aaron is going to meet him. Yeah. And maybe in some ways it's a curiosity. In a sense, maybe he sees himself as a documentarian and he takes his camera with him to the meeting and perhaps he just wants to see what, what this guy's got to say for himself. But this guy is so creepy that you would be crazy to meet him. He's called the cops. The cops said they couldn't do anything, I think, but he did try to call the cops. On them, didn't I think he? what's interesting is, you know, this this movement to edging towards confession and then coming down from that and then and then creating another fallacy. So I liked it in that sense, you know, he's, hey, you know, he's, he's, he keeps appearing and escalating, you know, the seriousness of his transgressions with Aaron. And then the last one is... He carries on, you know. He's seeing how far he can, he can extend and weave these yarns and have Aaron accept. Them. So, you know, finally, I think for him, it's exciting to, to, to tell an even bigger lie, which is, "Hey, I just want to meet up and talk about how terrible I've been." And for us, it wouldn't be convincing. But if you're Aaron, if you're Aaron, and you've been involved in this roller coaster lie, roller coaster of lies, and then very sophisticated and flexible retelling and re-spinning of yarns. It's, it's Somehow you might get caught up in it, but it's satisfying in terms of the symmetry, you know. In the way that the movie has evolved, we, we have to see Aaron now go in broad daylight, having called the police and with the video on, to meet up and to settle scores with Joseph. And so, and so what were you expecting at this point? The nice thing about this movie is it could be anything, couldn't yeah. it? It keeps you guessing, I think. I mean, obviously, you're supposed to expect that the whole movie has set you up to think that Joseph is a lunatic. Yes. Some kind of madman. Yeah. Literally an axe-wielding maniac, as, it's, as it turns out. But you could equally... This this movie could have ended with them being friends or lovers. Or... Or it could have ended up with... Aaron freaking out and doing, doing Joseph in. Yeah, I suppose That's a twist so. I was that, waiting for that never happened. The last images of the film, I suppose... Not quite the last images, but what you see is Aaron leaves his camera in his car on his dashboard, pointing at the bench by the lake where Joseph had suggested they meet. And you see him walking over there, and he looks around, he can't see anyone, he sits on the bench to wait. And as he's waiting there, from off screen, you see Joseph arrive in a long raincoat. He's obviously carrying something, quite a long shot, isn't it, from a distance, he pauses behind Aaron, who hasn't turned around, hasn't seen him. He's obviously quiet, doing it quietly. He pulls out a mask, the peach fuzz wolf mask. And with deliberation, coat, puts it on. Puts it on. And then he sneaks forward, holding the axe that we saw at the start of the movie. Inches away from Aaron. And then on screen, you see him bring it down on Aaron's head. To a with wet With an amazing foot. sound effect. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a most astounding sound effect. Nice bit of foley. Aaron lies in broad daylight in a crumpled mess. You see that on screen for quite a while, don't you? Yeah. And then you see Joseph, who's re-watching this. And he's explaining now to Camry, he's been videoing this on his television while he's re-watching this. And he says how Aaron, Aaron was... He really loved him because he was so giving. He explains how he never even turned around. He sat on the bench. Because he believed that Joseph could be a good person. And that's what made him yeah. his favourite victim. And then he takes the DVD out, puts it in his case, and he takes it to a cupboard, which is 
sort of filled with four score and more yeah of all of the other videotapes presumably the same kind of thing and you hear at the same time you hear him doing a phone message presumably from his craigslist ad where he's explaining to somebody that it's you know he'll pay them to come and film him for eight hours work this is how the film ends so for me i for me the the movement in the movie was basically an exploration of allegro and andante of bravado and then lie spinning and it, it works its way up, you know, increasing resonant amplitude to this this final grotesque act of bravado and risk taking, where you know he goes in the middle of a park in the middle of the day and murders somebody in broad daylight and gets away with it. You see, and so it comes down to that thing is you know when sociopaths they, they understand that most of us are tied into this you know our gullibility drives and our truth drives and our, 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 our common sense drives, and they know that if they bypass those circuits, they can get away with so much. It's very strange how they do that, but it's like you know it's, they view us as computers, and okay, they might not they might not have the software that we do, but they know that if you pass three thousand volts for a computer, you can break it. It's they break the rules in that kind of way, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess many of them do get away with it because they realise that how the rest of us, because we're all complicit in a society where we do have gullibility and trust. If you undermine those basic assumptions. You can move unseen into many areas of life. And it's. I, I think this movie really is, is great in the way that it scares the viewer into thinking, well, he did just get away with it. Mm. And maybe this is possible kind of thing, yeah. They Walk Among Us. They Walk Among Us, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite an affecting movie. Mm. And it's very, I guess it's very low budget. Only two actors in the cast, as you say. And it's short as well. It's only, what, one hour 15 or something. It's not 77 minutes, I think. Yeah, really good. You know, exercising brevity and telling its story and doing it very effectively. So I want to I want to mention two movies that have come before. Henry Confessions of a Serial Killer, nineteen eighty six. I think was one of the first killer POV movies. I'm not sure if it is Henry holding the camera or his friend holding the camera because they're a duo kind of thing. And I'm not sure if it's entirely found footage point of view. That was a groundbreaking movie. The other one is Frisk which is based on a novel by Dennis Cooper, which is a snuff novel from 1991. What's a snuff novel? Well, a snuff novel is kind of like very gruesome details from the, uh, written from an autobiographical perspective of confession from the killer's point of view. Uh, this guy's a drifter, a rich American drifter, goes through Europe murdering rem boys. And that was made into a movie in 1995. But it, it's a novel. It's not. It's fiction. Not. Oh, it's, well, it's this not is the point. I think for this movie and for those two, you kind of get the feeling like... There's something so resonant and something so effectively dramatic about the representation. You have to think, like, are these somehow confessional autobiographies on the writer's part? And I don't think they are. I think they're just very well observed. You know, they've really studied some characterization of sociopaths in this particular instance really well. And it conveys very well. I think what really hit home for me about this movie was if you compare it to the Malaysian Canal Street rapist in Manchester who's recently prosecuted, there are so many parallels here. The bravado, you know. Just the risk-taking, the way he would just go out at two o'clock, pick somebody up drunk, not think about it, bring them yeah. back. And because you wouldn't expect somebody to do that, you know, and then drug them and rape them in his own home, literally hundreds of yards from, from where he picked them up, just all those elements, the amount of risk-taking involved there. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, I thought it was all really well observed, this movie. It expresses something about serial killers, doesn't it? Which is that... They're different than the rest of us. Well, but no, but also the serial nature of the crime is that they get away with it once, yeah. then obviously they can do it again. And if they can do it two twice, they can obviously do it three times. You know, it's 
there's a sick logic to that, isn't there? Yeah. It's not as though they go, they do it and they think, what have I done? They don't have that response. No. They don't have the, what have I done? I can never do that again. It's, oh, look, you know, it worked. So let's repeat. That's the shocking, one of the shocking elements about that as a crime as well, isn't it? So this movie did manage to shock and to provoke. And I thought on that level, it was very, very successful. And also really funny at times. And and tense and sometimes scary too, you know, so. I think it's so well named because I've never seen a movie have to express that kind of creepiness so very well. Well, that, you know, that was their aim, you know. Movie. That was their aim to have somebody who's a little bit off, yeah. just off in so many yeah. ways. And he was brilliantly done. The staring, the oversharing, the forced hugs, the weird apologies. Traditional horror movie, you know, the, the antagonist is like a man wearing somebody else's skin, you know, chasing you through the dormitory or whatever. It's just too big, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's melodrama, it's pantomime. This is completely not that. Let us imagine the ending is different. Let us imagine that Joseph doesn't murder Aaron. But maybe they meet on the park bench and he's equally awkward. And, you know, they carry on not being total friends. But this, the movie would still be equally entertaining, you know, in a sense. I mean, I think it's made better by the shock horror ending. But for me, the movie is delicious because of the social awkwardness that it expresses. Do you agree? I do agree. It's just a really good movie, generally. I mean, I think, you know, when, when actors are in their zone, as they obviously were for this movie then magic can happen. And I think magic happened here. I, I don't think they necessarily thought the movie out as as it turned out, but it, somehow they just got in the zone, they got in their groove, they got in their flow, and something really good came out here. So, yeah. Let's give it a score. Well, let's start off with the acting. I mean, this is easy, right? There's two of them. There's two of them, yeah. Look, the guy playing Joseph, uh, Mark, it does a really good job. Is it a bit big? That's the question. I don't think it is, is it? I think it works in the context. Aaron's less persuasive for me, but that's only because he's supposed to be the one we identify with. I think he's a bit of a cipher. And he's literally behind the camera for most of it. Yeah. Not in front of it. Obviously a subtle performance. Yeah, but I think he's supposed to be quite a malleable character anyway, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A bit of a bleeding heart, you know. So I, for me, I think the acting really worked. I thought it was uh, more than ample, more than what was required. I'm going to have to score it nine. Wow. Yeah, it worked on every level for me. I can understand how you might think it was a little bit actor's workshop hammy and potentially self-indulgent. But I think it worked, you know, I think... I think, you know, they, they, they embraced the roles and really made them come alive. And it's not not easy to do. It would be impossible for me, I think, to distinguish between the sort of cringe factor and awkwardness of a bad acting job and the cringe factor and awkwardness of that guy being... That character, yeah. You know, it's very difficult. I'm going to go seven, okay. though. But I'm well aware that's low-balling it a bit. I mean, it, I don't have any great complaints about the acting. What about the plot and the, you know, the storyline? This is, I think, really special here. I think it it really works. Say, the only weak bit is that link, the point where Aaron decides to go to the lake. That just felt like the story being told. It didn't feel very authentic. But in all other respects, yeah. Uh, so I'll give it an eight. I'm going to go eight too. No, nothing really to call it, call it out on. Uh, I thought at times it could have been a little bit better paced. But apart from that, it was pretty much on point. Now, what about action and effects? So this movie sticks to its found footage conceit right the way through. It doesn't drop it. And it's all shot as if it's on some kind of 
camcorder, isn't it? So, you know, it's a technical achievement to get that right and to, you know, end up with a, a watchable movie. There's very little actual gore, if any. Maybe a bit of foley. It's a convincing bit of foley, actually. So, yeah, this is definitely worth a seven for special effects. I think, you know, props to them for getting real scare factor out of the cheapest prop, which is a joke shop mask of a wolf, <laughs> but really scary. Yeah, and building building a world around that, you know, Peach Fuzz, the silly song that came with it, fabulous. And so I think just the way they built the props and the ideas into the movie made for really good action. So I'm going to give it a nine. Oh. Yeah. How about the fear factor or jump scare, as you would call it? Mm, Yeah, I don't think there was too much of it. It was kind of nails on blackboard. It was like, oh, God, no, Aaron, you know, don't. You know, he's he's going to be downstairs. (laughs) Don't go downstairs, you know. So I I like that, you know. It, It was never really, it was never scary, but it was creepy, you know, when he appeared outside of windows and doors and that kind of thing and, and suddenly disappeared. I also like the way there was a sudden change in his character. Like, you know, he'd be very serious and adult and then he'd run off like a child. I thought all this was very <laughs> convincing and quite scary. And so, because there was that jumpiness in him, when he did appear all of a sudden, you know, when, when Joseph did appear all of a sudden, it worked. So I'm going to score an eight. As I say, I think this movie really encapsulates the idea of creepiness. Those jump scares that it does all the time, really. Not all the time, but but frequently. In the film are Joseph being annoying as fuck to Aaron. They're also very effective at just sort of psychologically punching the audience. Uh, I, I, I like them. So I've got to give it a nine. Yeah, so I think basically what holds this movie together as a basic thread is, would you do, the viewer, would you do what Aaron did? This kind of this question. Oh, it's a classic horror thing, isn't it? Would you would you would, do this? Would you, go to, you know, would you go down? Would you go to down the there? Would it's you like... leave earlier? You know, would you meet him again? And that's great because it, it implicitly poses those questions to the viewer, and so it really works. So my final score is some is greater than the parts. Nine point five. You know, one of the best ones I've seen so far. Definite strong recommend for anybody. Yeah, I'll give it. I'll give it a nine as well. I think it's about it's about as good as Sinister. I think. Yeah, I, I, do, I, I don't really enjoy both of these films. Yeah, I enjoy both. But for me, this one's a li- just a little bit stronger. And yeah, highly, highly recommend. So check it out if you can do. Right, Richard, I think it's my turn, is it not? Are we finished with this movie? Okay. We have, haven't we? We are finished with this movie, yeah. Unless you have anything more you want to say. Please don't have nightmares. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, let's move on to next week's choice. Is it my turn to offer choices to you? I think it is. We don't care anymore, do we? We don't know anymore. But you, you know, when Alistair came in, he, he mucked up he did. The, uh, he did. the flip-flop. He messed it. He messed the flip-flop up, yeah. Well, okay, I'm going to give you three choices. I don't know how you feel about that. It's a poverty of riches. It is, rather. Number three, uh, counted backwards, is uh, our, our listener Adam's suggestion. Suspiria or Suspira. I think it's Suspiria. Italian spaghetti horror. Number two, Climax. I think this is from 2018. I'm not entirely sure what it's about. Number one, His House. Very recent, Netflix 2020. Paul, you haven't seen any of these films, have you? No, that's why I'm suggesting them. No, I understand. And that, in, in a sense, that is encapsulating the whole concept of this podcast. Thank you. But what what do you think you would appreciate more? I want to go for something recent. I, prefer, I think I prefer to go for His House. Okay. I think that's a good idea because... Which is built as some sort of semi-horror, is that right? I've heard good things about this. Oh, good. And it is recent. 
So it's on Netflix. Let's choose his house for next week's movie. We finally we found a way out of there eventually, out of the woods. But we haven't found a way out of lockdown. No, no. So to reiterate and to reverb on your original question, Richard, do you think there is a way out of lockdown? Not for us, Paul. Oh, no. dear. We're doomed. We're doomed. We're lost in space. Just a rather small space called my bedroom for the rest of my life. Is that You're not in your bedroom, are you? Yeah, I'm in my spare bedroom. Oh. It's now a studio. You have a spare bedroom. It's very late here, actually. It's gone 1am. Well, as I'm maybe 0.5 degrees of a longitude or latitude west of you, it's almost as late here, Richard. Possibly oh, you're, 15 seconds I or see. 30 seconds. You're not running on railway time or whatever, then. This is fascinating. Railway time, they had to set the clocks differently. Yeah. And trains would go faster one way than the other by up to 12 minutes if they were heading to Cornwall because of that. <laughs> it's like time travel, isn't it? It's time dilation. Yeah, we've been through this before. It's perfectly understandable. So, Richard, have you, have you made your decision? What do you want to watch next week? I've told you. Oh, implicitly. Watching, watching his, house. his house. Cool. Great. Yeah. So, until next week, it's time for the closing music. Composed by Paul, performed by Paul. Hated by Paul. In three... <laughs> Thank you.